This evening we're beginning our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 1. And as you make your way to the first chapter of Job, I just want to spend a few minutes setting the stage for our study of this challenging and yet inspiring book. I want to begin by first pointing out that the book of Job marks the beginning of the third section of the Old Testament. Now, just for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the Old Testament actually contains four main sections. Uh, This begins with the first five books of the law, which are known as the Torah, as well as the Pentateuch. After that, we find the historical books, which began with Joshua and ended with Esther. The third section of the Old Testament is known as the wisdom books. This section begins with Job. It also includes the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, as well as the Song of Solomon. And then the wisdom books are followed by the fourth and final section of the Old Testament, which contains the prophetic books that include the major and the minor prophets. Well, now as we begin our overview of the wisdom books, you might like to know that the books found in this third section of the Old Testament, they actually contain a style of writing which falls into the category of ancient Near East wisdom literature. And with this, uh, within this genre of literature, we actually find two main types, uh, which are known as, number one, proverbial wisdom, and number two, speculative wisdom. And while the book, uh, the book of Proverbs actually contains an example of proverbial wisdom, the book of Job is actually based on the speculative wisdom that's expressed throughout an unfolding dialogue that takes place throughout the bulk of this book. Now, as we begin to kick off our study of this third section... Well, you might like to know that wisdom literature, literature it's a genre that focuses on existential topics or topics about existence. This includes, of course, the existence of God. Uh, this also includes a focus on his purposeful plan in creating mankind. Not only that, but wisdom literature also addresses existential questions about good and evil, as well as the nature of pain and suffering. And as we make our way through the book of Job, we're going to spend our time considering all of these existential questions, and we're going to consider it from the point of view of God as soon as, you know, as we finally get to the end of this book. Sadly for us, the author of this book decided to remain anonymous, and it's for this reason that, you know, both scholars and students of life have speculated about the identity of the author. Some believe that this book was written by Moses, others think that it was written by the wise King Solomon. The main problem, though, with these options is due to the fact that the style of Hebrew found in this book is undeniably more ancient than the days of both Solomon and Moses. It's for this reason that some scholars insist that the book of Job was probably written during the days of Abraham, which was during the 20th century BC. And with that being the case, there are those who insist that this book may have been written by Job himself. Others have made a case for Job's friend Elihu, who uh, will be introduced to near the end of this book. And one reason for believing that this book may have been written by Elihu, well, it's because he actually uses the first person personal pronoun, I, as the author would have done in his own writing. And so before we get into a whole conversation about personal pronouns, let's move right along. Regardless of the exact identity of the individual who authored this book, 
Well, I have no doubt that the author was divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And so regardless of whether it was Moses or Solomon, whether it was Job or Elihu, regardless of the person that was used, that person was divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, as we spend time studying this book, what's well, my prayer that the trials and the tribulations of Job, that they might help us to realize that there is a reason for the pain and the suffering that the Lord allows. And while I know that it's difficult for us to comprehend this truth, we can still rest assured that those who will seek the Lord in the midst of the storm, they'll end up being perfected according to these, the, the, the new perspective that we acquire in the midst of the refiner's fire. Well, with this as the focus, if you would, let's turn our attention now to the first chapter of this book. If you would look with me here at Job chapter 1. I want to begin reading there at verse 1, because here we learn that there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. He was sort of the Muhammad Ali of the Middle East, if you will. In the beginning of this chapter, we're introduced to Job, who uh, was clearly living in the land of Uz, though we're not clear about where exactly that was. We can't say for certain where the land of Uz was located, but there are some biblical, even extra-biblical clues that place this region to the south and, and to the east of Israel. And there's good reason to believe that the land of Uz actually included Edom, Moab, and even Ammon. Well, regardless of the precise location of Job's home, What we can say for certain is that he had 10 kids. This included seven sons and three daughters and no zers or zs or zems. His wife wasn't mentioned here in the beginning of this book. And yet we do learn more about her in Job chapter 2. And and we'll discover uh, next week that she was a bit of a cranky lady. And before we... Before we become too critical, remember, she gave birth to seven sons and three daughters. I'm guessing she had, you know, justification for being a bit cranky there. But listen, before I get too far ahead of myself, we should take some time to consider the character of this family man. And if you would notice with me again there in verse 1, because here we learn that there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And here in these verses, we learn about the righteous character of this man named Job. And, and listen, we, we have to recognize nobody's perfect. We know that Job wasn't a perfect man. And yet it's also true that Job was both blameless and upright. Or in other words, he was a man of integrity who always offered the right sacrifices for his sins, and he did his best to live a virtuous and ethical life. We also learn that he was a man who feared God and shunned evil. In other words, it was his, his incredible respect for the Lord. That's what we talk about when, we're, when we reference the fear of God. We're talking about this reverent respect for the Lord. He feared God, and as a result, he steered clear of the wicked ways of this world. 
Now, in light of his example, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, would the Holy Spirit describe me as a blameless and upright man? Or, or, or you might ask, you know, would, would the Holy Spirit describe me as blameless and upright? Do I walk in the fear of the Lord so that I can shun the wicked ways of this world? With these questions in mind, I encourage you to remember the encouragement that James presented in the fourth chapter of his epistle. It's there where he declares, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Christian, listen, those who want to shun evil must first submit to our Savior Jesus in the reverent fear of the Lord. And in this way, the Lord will help us to become believers who are actually following in the footsteps of Job. Now, with this as the goal, I want to continue to consider the blameless and upright example of Job. And so if you will, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 1. Look with me there, beginning at verse 4. Here we learn that his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now here in these verses, we learn about the way that Job encouraged his family to follow in his faithful footsteps. And he did this by sending for them in the morning so that they could come and be purified and consecrated according to the burnt offerings that he would present to the Lord, not only on his own behalf, but also on behalf of his kids. And listen, he did this because he knew that it was possible, if not even probable, that they had sinned against the Lord, at least if nothing else, in their hearts. Notice again there in the middle of verse 5 where Job says to himself, perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. That's right, Job wasn't one of those parents who sees their children as sinless angels who can do no wrong. Now there's many parents who the minute you try to tell them that their kid did something, well, not my kid. Couldn't be my kid. My kid's a little angel. Never, never sinned in their life. False. All kids sin. Why? Because all kids are little sinners. It's true. We're all sinners. And the parent who takes this position of, well, my kid's basically perfect, perfect, just, just, just about like Jesus, you know. It's not true. It's not true. They might be just really good at hiding their sin from you. And so Job here is saying, hey, I haven't really seen any sin, but it's possible in their hearts they've sinned. So I'm going to offer up sacrifices for them anyway. And in light of his example, I encourage every parent to grasp this reality. Parents, please trust me when I tell you that the parent who truly fears God and wants to shun evil, they will continue to encourage their kids to live for the Lord according to the instructions that we find in the word of God. And listen, this is not only true when they're still living at home. You know, a lot of parents kind of take this position of, well, once they're gone, and you know, 
They're, they're living on their own. You know, I, I, I'm not going to speak into their life anymore. Why would, you, why would you take that position? According to Job here, you know, he continued, though they had moved out, though they all had their own places, he continues to challenge them to come and be sanctified through the sacrifices. Much like Job who sent for his kids so that they might be sanctified, I encourage every parent to continue influencing your children according to the word of God. And especially if you're sending them off to college. Listen, if you're sending them off to these, you know, these places that uh, you, know, you send your, your once-believing child and they, they come out socialist, you know, those places, how much more do they need your influence during those years when they're finally beginning to spread their wings? Christian, listen, that's not the time to step back from being influential in their lives. The Christian parent who wants to walk in the fear of the Lord will simultaneously shun evil. And one way that you do that is by continuing to influence your kids to walk with the Lord. At the same time, it's also important for us to realize that there is an enemy who wants to destroy our families. No doubt about it. There is an enemy who wants to destroy your kids. There's an enemy that wants to destroy your marriage. There's an enemy that wants to destroy your life. And to prove my point, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 1. We'll begin reading at verse 6, because here we learn that there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And here in these verses, we were given this glimpse into the throne room of the Lord. And as we consider this day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, uh, you know, there is some debate about what the sons of God are. And, and yet we must not fail to notice here that Satan was with them. They, the, Satan was amongst this group of beings called the sons of God. Well, knowing that the Lord Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, well, it only stands to reason that these are the entities who are actually angelic beings, and they're being referred to as sons of God in, in a special creation sort of way, but not to be confused with the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus is not an angel, nor are angels sons of God in the same sense that Jesus is. But we do believe that these sons of God were angelic beings, and one reason why is because Satan is an angel. Satan is a fallen angel who was initially known as Lucifer. As a matter of fact, it's in Isaiah chapter 14 where Isaiah declares, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Here in these verses, we learn about this angel named Lucifer who decided one day to exalt himself above his creator. And it's for this reason that he ended up being cast down from the mountain of God. Ever since then, Satan's been walking around on the earth like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But, but now before we consider the way that you know, Satan began to target Job here in our text tonight, I want to consider how Lucifer became our adversary. The prophet Ezekiel elaborates on this in Ezekiel chapter 28. 
It's there where he declared you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. Uh, The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. He was like a regular Elton John there in heaven. Ezekiel tells us that uh, that he was anointed, the, the anointed cherub who covers. The Lord says, I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Here we learn about the way that this anointed cherub named Lucifer was cast down from the mountain of God. It was at that point in time when this fallen angel then disguised himself as a dragon, and he went to the Garden of Eden in order to deceive Eve so that he might bring forth the fall of man. It's for this reason that John the Revelator refers to this fallen angel as the great dragon. As a matter of fact, it's in Revelation chapter 12 where the apostle John describes the day when war will break out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Now here in these verses, we learn about this day when Satan and his angels will finally and forever be cut off from the presence of God. There's coming a day in the future, I believe that this is going to take place in the middle of the tribulation, and it's at that point in time when Satan and those angels that fell with him, they're going to be cast down and cut off from heaven forevermore. What this means is that Satan and his fallen angels still have some level of access to the throne room of the Lord. And here in Job, uh, we learn that, you know, the sons of God were actually called to stand before the Lord. John uh, actually uh, confirms this, that, that the enemy at this point in time still has some level of access. It's, it's in Revelation chapter 12, where John informs us that Satan is the accuser who accuses believers before our God day and night. You might not know that, but you know, Satan goes before the Lord on the regular in order to accuse us. Satan stands before our creator, our savior, and accuses us. And, and, and listen, I'm guessing he doesn't have to make much up. I'm guessing that's probably the one place he tells the truth. Yeah, he accuses us night and day, and, and, and then he comes back to earth, and, and he's roaming to and fro looking for those that he can devour. And it's here in our text tonight where we learn about the way that Satan actually set his sights on Job. Now, with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 1. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 8. Here we learn that the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? 
You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Now, As we take a closer look at these verses, it kind of seems like the Lord was the one who was suggesting that Satan should maybe take a look at Job. You know, he asks, have you considered my servant Job? Hey, if you're looking for somebody to attack, have you, have you considered Job? Listen, if, if it reads like that in your mind, I can assure you that's not the case at all. And to, to prove my point, let's take another look at verse 8. Here again, we learn that the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now, I like the way that the scholars who created the legacy standard Bible render the Hebrew in this verse. Here's how they put it. Then Yahweh said to Satan, have you set your heart upon my servant Job? I believe that's a better translation of the original Hebrew. Have you set your heart on this, my servant? Rather than inviting Satan to fix his focus on Job, the Lord was actually exposing Satan's evil scheme, which was to go and attack Job the first chance that he had. Further proof of my point? Well, it's found there in verses 9 and 10. Notice with me there where Satan answers the Lord and says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and his household and around all that he has on every side? In other words, Satan had already gone and investigated Job. And he had already seen that there was some sort of supernatural hedge protecting the household of Job. So listen, don't, don't get, get it in your mind that you need to go surround your house with shrubberies. You know, that's, I mean, it might look beautiful, but uh, we're not talking about a literal hedge here. There was some sort of, some sort of supernatural hedge of protection. And so we see that Satan had already set his sights on Job, and it was the Lord who was exposing Satan's sinful scheme. This also reminds me about the time when the Lord Jesus warned the apostle Peter about the spiritual attack of Satan. It's actually in Luke chapter 22, where we learn that the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, Strengthen your brethren. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus warning Peter about the evil scheme of Satan. Satan had actually come to the Lord and asked for Peter. And this should have been alarming to Peter. Peter should have taken this and and thought, okay, what are we going to do about this? Where's the the hedge that I can, you know, get in the middle of here? But he didn't. No, Peter here proudly responds by assuring our Savior that he was ready to ride or die with Jesus, you know. That's how Peter responds by declaring in verse 33, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. That is until a little servant girl comes and asks me if I know you, and then I'm going to cry. Jesus says, I tell you, that Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. Sadly, it was the, pr- the pride of Peter that led him to, to fail. Peter failed to heed the warning of the Lord because his heart was filled with pride. He's a do-or-die Christian, you know. But he wasn't. He didn't have that measure of faith just yet. He would after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But at this point in time, 
He's exalting himself. And those who exalt themselves, they will fall. Peter encouraged every believer in hindsight to be aware of the enemy. Considering his own failure, he took the time in his first epistle to warn us about the attacks of the enemy. It's in 1 Peter chapter 5 where the apostle Peter declares, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Christian, listen, the devil and his demons are on the prowl. And they're going to and fro on the earth as they look for those that they can bring into bondage. And it's for this reason that Peter encouraged us to remain sober and to be vigilant so that we might stand fast in the faith as we resist the enemy by the power of the Holy Spirit. At the same time, it's also important for us to realize that the attacks of the enemy are spiritual trials that the Lord actually allows so that those who trust in him can have a faith that's put to the test. And in this way, we learn how to rely on the supernatural strength of our Savior Jesus rather than on our own presumed strength. But what this also means then is, listen, the enemy can't attack us unless the Lord allows it. You might not know that, but it's true. The enemy cannot attack us unless the Lord allows it. And to prove my point, let's consider the way that the Lord allowed Satan to attack the household of Job. With this as the focus, if you will, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Here we learn that the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabians raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. That's really bad news. But it doesn't stop there. In verse 16, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Wow, some more bad news, but it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 17. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. More bad news, and yet it doesn't end here. Look at verse 18. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. It's tragic. In one day, Satan was allowed to attack the entire household of Job. And as we consider the way that Job lost all 10 kids, 
as well as the majority of his servants, not to mention his camels, his sheep, his oxen, and his donkeys, all in one day. And Satan was gracious enough to leave the, the cranky wife who we're going to learn about <laughs> next week. I think that was by design as well. I'm going to leave this gal. She'll continue my work. In light of all of this, there should be no doubt in our minds that the devil has come to kill and to steal and to destroy. No doubt about it. This is what he will do to a person in one day if the Lord allows it. We could spend some time tonight thinking, you know, asking why, why did God allow it? And yet I would maybe just take a, a, a moment to put this in a positive sense. Aren't you thankful that God isn't allowing this to happen to every single person every single day? If the Lord allowed the devil to just have free reign, this is what he would be doing to people every single day. You better believe that the state of this world would be far, far worse than it already is if the Lord wasn't keeping the devil and the demons on some sort of leash. In my opinion, the leash is already too long, but I'm not God. But we must understand that, that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And what this means is that the wickedness of this world will continue to increase as we get closer to the rapture of the church. This was precisely the point that Paul was making in 2 Timothy chapter 3. There he declares, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Christian, do you realize that evil men and imposters are growing worse and worse today? And what do we mean by imposters except, you know, the servants of Satan who masquerade as Bible teachers, as worship leaders, as spiritual gurus who can help us to, you know, get to the next stage in our spiritual growth? Are you able to identify the evil men and the imposters who are growing worse and worse every day? Or are you just open to any spiritual teacher that comes along that's popular on the planet today? Listen, I don't know about you, but for me, when I see something gaining popularity in the church, that's my first red flag. That's the first moment I go, okay, what's wrong with this? And hopefully nothing. Hopefully after I investigate it, nothing's wrong with this and we should embrace it. But you better believe that when something is gaining popularity and traction in the church, it's the first thing I examine. I look for heresy. And you might think, well, that's just too critical. Yeah, well, I don't want to get duped by the devil. I don't want to fall into the satanic schemes of Satan. So yeah, I'm going to take the time to examine every movie, every author, and, and, you know, all, the, all the different you know, popular pastors out there and these sorts of things. Yeah, I'm going to examine all of it. And be super critical of all of it. Why? Because evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Hands up. Who wants to be deceived? <laughs> Nobody? 
you better get critical then. Because we are living in these times when the enemy is going to lead you astray and take you off course with things that sound beautiful and lovely, but they're lies. We need to get super critical in these days because the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And yet, listen, the Lord will allow this to happen. Yeah, there's Christians that I see online that they're going to stop the Antichrist from rising up. No, you're not. This is God's plan. The Lord's going to allow this. He's going to allow the enemy to rise up. He's going to allow the church to slip into a state of apostasy. And he's going to allow those who live godly in Christ Jesus to suffer persecution. And and listen, I, I have no doubt that many of us are struggling as we wonder, why in the world does the Lord allow the enemy to attack the people of faith? Job wasn't some sinner, you know, who was living in sin, and so, you know, the Lord used the enemy to go and punish him. No, that's not the story. Job was blameless. Job was living in the right way. And yet the Lord allowed Satan to go and basically wipe out all of his wealth and all of his family in one day. Why does God allow this? Why does he allow the devil and his demons to persecute the people who are trying to live a godly life by faith in Jesus Christ? I have no doubt that we all struggle with this to some degree. And if this is something that you're struggling with tonight, then it'll help us to remember the word of encouragement that James presented in his little epistle. It's actually in James chapter one, where James says this. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Christian, listen, the trials and the troubles that the Lord allows are permitted for our perfection. You might not want to hear that tonight. You might be thinking, hey, let me be imperfect then, thanks. But the Lord has a perfect plan to perfect us. But our faith must be put to the test in order to accomplish this perfection. Therefore, we can rest assured that every spiritual attack that we endure has been filtered through the sifter of our Savior's love. That being the case, I encourage every Christian to follow in the footsteps of Job. And with this as the goal, if you would, let's turn our attention back to Job chapter 1. I want to pick up our study beginning at verse 20, because here we learn that Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head like every godly man should. And he fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Here in the final verses of this chapter, we find the the proper perspective of a person who truly trusts the Lord. 
And while the prosperity preachers try to convince us that we have to manifest our health and manifest our wealth with positive confessions and our words are container of, containers of power and you just have to speak health and wealth into your life and you'll get it and money cometh and these sorts of things. The Holy Spirit has assured us that Job is the one who provides us with the best example of persevering faith. How do I know? Because I know what the Bible says. Proof of my point can be found in James chapter 5. It's there where James declares this. He says, my brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now, you wouldn't know that from chapter 1. You wouldn't know that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful from chapter 1. But as we continue to make our way through this book, we'll discover that the Lord even had a perfect plan in all of this. So rather than you know, becoming a bitter believer who's cursing God because he's lost everything, Job endured with perseverant, with perseverant faith. And Job now provides us with a perfect example of this faithful perseverance. And so, listen, if you're a believer who is currently enduring the attacks of the enemy, and you might be, I encourage you, follow in the faithful footsteps of Job. Let Job be your example. Because according to the Holy Spirit, through the, through the pen of James here, we count them blessed who endure as we consider the perseverance of Job and the end intended by the Lord. Whatever's happening in your life tonight is not the end. Do you realize that? It might feel like the end. But before you start you know, singing Doors songs and crying all night. This is not the end. This is not the end of your story. God has a compassionate and merciful end to your story. And so rather than becoming a bitter believer, I encourage you to remember that the Lord has a perfect plan which will result in the perfection of those who persevere with joy. And while I realize the path of perfection is filled with trials and troubles and temptations, and listen, those who will simply walk by faith with our Savior will learn how to rest in the grace of the Lord Jesus as we wait for the God of peace to crush Satan under our feet. Amen? Let's pray.